Chapter Three of Eight Keys to Eden by Mark Clifton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Dale Grothman. In the early dawn, out at the hangar, away from the main E buildings and the endless discussions going on inside them, Thomas R. Linwood moved methodically through his pre-flight inspection. Speculative thinking was none of his concern. His job was to pilot an E wherever he might want to go, and bring him back again, if possible. To Linwood, reality was a physical thing, the feel of the controls beneath his broad, square hands, the hum of machinery responsive to his will. He liked mathematics, not for its own sake, but because it best described the substance of things, the weight, the size, the properties of things, how they behave. He was too intelligent not to realize that mathematics could also communicate speculative unrealities, but he was content to wait until the theorists had turned such equations into machines, controls, forces before he got excited. He was one who, even in childhood, had never wanted to be an E. He didn't want to be one now. Somebody had once told him in personnel that was why he was a favorite pilot of the E's, but he discounted that. They didn't tell him how to run his ship. Well, most of them didn't. And he didn't try to tell them how to solve their problems. The men around the hangar had another version of why the E's liked him to pilot them around. He was lucky. Somehow, he always managed to come back and bring the E with him. Well, sure, he didn't want to get stuck somewhere, wind up in Julio's gullet, gassed by an atmosphere that turned from oxygen-nitrogen into pure methane without warning or reason, and against all known chemical laws, or whiffed out in the lash of a dead star suddenly gone nova. But sometimes a pilot can't help himself. These E's would fiddle around in places where human beings shouldn't have gone. Most of the time, they weren't allowed even one mistake. He was lucky, sure but part of it might be because he'd never been sent out with the wrong E. There could be a first time. Luck ran out if you kept pulling your bets higher and higher, but until then... He was square-jawed, a freckled man with red hair. Contrary to superstition, he didn't have a fiery temper. He was forty, and had already built up a seniority of twenty years in deep space. He was captain of his ship, and wanted nothing more. Sure, it was a three-man crew, himself, a flight engineer, and an astronavigator. But it was an E-ship, and that meant he outranked even the captains of the great luxury liners. There was a time when the realization caused him to strut a little, but he got over it. He was single, had no ties, wanted none. He had a good job, which he took seriously was doing significant work, which he also took seriously, was paid premium wages even for a space captain, which didn't matter except in terms of recognition. He didn't mind going anywhere in the known universe, or how long he would be away. He hoped he would get back some day, but he wasn't frantic about it. In a routine so well practiced that it had become a ritual, he checked over the cruiser point by point. Of course, the maintenance men had checked every item when they had, after his last trip, dismantled, cleaned, oiled, polished, tested, 
and reassembled one part after another. Then maintenance supervisors had checked over the ship with the gimlet-eyed attitude of hoping to find some flaw, just one tiny flub, so they could turn some luckless mechanic inside out. The inspection department, traditionally an enemy of maintenance, took over from there, and inspected every part as if it had been slapped together by a bunch of army goof-offs who knew the pilots were expendable in peace or war, and, unconsciously at least, aided in expending them. Both departments had certified, with formal pre-flight papers, that the ship was in readiness for deep space. But Linwood considered such papers as so much garbage and went over the entire ship himself. This might have something to do with his so-called luck. He wondered if Frank and Louis had checked into the ship this morning. Probably had. Last night's outing wasn't much to hang over about. A steak at the Eagle Cafe down in Yellow Sands, a couple of drinks at Smitty's, a game of pool at Smiley's, a few dances at the Stars and Moons big night out for his crew before they left for deep space yellow sands was strictly for young families where bright boy hubbies worked up on the hill at ehq and wifey raised super bright kids who already considered dad to be behind the times their idea of sin in that town was to snub the wrong matron at a cocktail party or not snub as the case may be not that it mattered much Neither Frank nor Louis was dedicated to hell-raising. When he at last opened the door to the generator room, he saw his flight engineer, Frank Norton, had a couple of student E's on his hands. It was one of the nuisances of being stationed here at EHQ that you have swarms of these super-bright youngsters hanging around, asking questions, disputing your answers, arguing with each other, and, if you didn't watch them carefully, taking things apart and putting them back together in a different hookup to see what would happen. First thing these kids were taught was to disregard everything anybody else ever said, to start out from scratch as if nobody had ever had the sense to think about the problem before, to doubt most of all the opinions of experts, for, obviously, if the experts were right, then there was no problem. Most of them hadn't been taught it, but they seemed to have been born with it. Time was you battered a young smart aleck down, told him to go get dry behind the ears before he shot off his mouth. But not these days. These days you looked at him hopefully and crossed your fingers. He might grow up to be an E. Tom wondered what it would be like to doubt the realities, the very machinery under his hands, to assume that although it had always worked, it might not work this time. He could not conceive that state of mind, or how a man could live in it without going insane. Every time he saw these tortured kids saying, Well, maybe, but what if... He was glad to be nothing more than a ship's captain who knew his machinery was exactly what it was supposed to be, and nothing else. But in a way, it was nice for the lads too. After thousands of years of man's most rabid determination to destroy the brightest and best of his young, the world had finally found a place for the bright boy. This morning, probably because of the early dawn hour, there were only two of them in the generator room. As expected, they were arguing over the space jump band. Frank was standing over to one side observing 
but not participating his cap was pushed back on his blond head his big face expressionless it was common gossip throughout the flight crews everywhere that frank blindfolded could take a cruiser apart and put it back together without missing a motion the jump band is founded on the basics of the mobius strip one student e was saying heatedly this little gadget sends out a field in the shape of such a strip a band with a half twist before rejoining its width is as variable as we need it up to a light year only it hadn't any width at all the other student argued that's the whole point the mobius strip is only one edge so it can't have width we entered that edge go through a line that doesn't exist and come out a light year away without taking any longer than the time to pass a point but that's what happens not now the other shouted angrily everybody knows what happens tell me how and maybe i'll listen tom caught his flight engineer's eye and signaled with his head that it might be a good idea to get rid of the students any other time it would have been all right a part of their standby job but they'd got word last night to have the ship in readiness from six o'clock on they might have to wait all day but then again some e might get an idea and want to go shooting out to eden right off frank caught the signal grinned and began to herd the two students toward the door they were in such a heated argument now accusing each other of parrot repetition instead of thinking for himself that they didn't realize that they were being nudged out of the ship down its ramp and out onto the field don't think it hasn't been educational and all frank murmured to them as he got them off the ramp you get the how of it figured out and let me know the two looked at him as if he might be an interesting phenomenon decided he wasn't and wandered away back toward the school dormitories still arguing sometimes i think a quiet milk run out to saturn might have its bright side frank muttered to tom when he came back inside the ship tom grinned at him in wordless understanding there was no tension between them they had worked together so long that they had got over all the attraction repulsion conflicts which operated far beneath the surface mind to cause likes and dislikes now they accepted one another in a way that a man accepts his own hands proud of them when they do something with extra skill making allowances for their fumbles but never considering doing without them wonder who the e will be this time frank asked without too much concern it didn't really matter an e was an e for better or worse haven't heard tom answered probably not decided yet if the senior e's think it isn't much of a problem they might send a junior or if they didn't want to be bothered they might send a junior who's up for his solo problem whoever or whatever i'm sure it will be interesting frank commented with a grin tom returned the grin there wasn't any malice in it or any of the basic enmity and destructiveness of the stupid toward the bright just a recognition that an e was an e they had a vast respect for an e but you couldn't get around it that some of them were well maybe eccentric was the word i hear there's trouble on the planet we're going to eden isn't it frank commented you think we'd be hauling an e out there if there wasn't tom countered wryly they continued to check over each item in the generator room 
their flying fingers making sharp contrast to their slow idle conversation they gave the room extra care this time because there were some quick-fingered students around who just might have got it into their heads to improve the machinery satisfied at last that there had been no subtle meddling they snapped the cowl of the generator back into position they took one more sharp look around then walked single file up the narrow passage to the control room louis lebeau was sitting in the astro navigator's seat checking over his star charts and instruments he glanced up at them as they came level with his cubicle he was the third man of the team as used to them as they were to him fourteen hop adjustments to get us past pluto and out of the heavy traffic he grumbled sourly his round face and liquid brown eyes were perpetually disgusted they keep saying over at traffic that they're going to provide a freeway out of the solar system so we can take it in one hop but they don't do it wonder when we'll ever go modern start doing things scientifically they paid no attention to his grumbling that was just louis then how many hops to eden after pluto tom asked i figure twenty louis answered can't take full light-year leaps every time there's stuff in the way there's always stuff in the way to louse up a good flight plan universe is too crowded there'll be no trouble getting to eden no trouble getting there make it in about fourteen hours fourteen hours to go eleven lousy little light years fourteen hours i've got to work in one stretch wait till the union agent hears you're working me fourteen hours without relief and are you letting me get my rest now so i can work fourteen hours or are you stopping me from resting with a lot of questions but you think there may be trouble after we get to eden tom asked louis looked at him there was no fear in the soft brown eyes just an enormous indignation that life should always treat him so dirty don't you he asked end of chapter three of eight keys to eden by mark clifton read by dale grothman